Hello, Gills, and welcome to another episode of the Gills Talk. Today, we are going to feature an interview with Megan Winton. Megan Winton is such a light. She is so passionate about her work with sharks, and you'll hear that reflected very well within our interview today. So Megan primarily focuses on the white shark, or as you might know it as, the great white shark. So before we do get started, as always, we do like to share some facts about the species that our scientists do focus on. So let's learn about the white shark. Now we do see populations of white sharks throughout our world. We see them off the coast of South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and on the west coast of the United States off of California where the Farallone Islands are, but as well as a little further south off of Guadalupe Island in Mexico. But Megan, she is focusing on the white shark population here in the Northwest Atlantic Ocean where they primarily spend most of their time here off of Cape Cod in Massachusetts. Now, we do see these white sharks moving from as far north as Canada and down south to Florida. So Megan is working and researching their, the population, the movements of this fish in our oceans. The white shark is considered a vulnerable species on the IUCN red list. And with that, this is why it is incredibly important to continue to research the species here in our ocean so we can continue to learn more about them. But one of my favorite facts about the white shark is that their teeth change shape over time. So when they are juveniles, their teeth are a more skinnier triangle. And I know being an audio podcast here, this is going to be hard to envision, but try to imagine here with me. They have skinnier triangle teeth that are are flat, sharp-sided, and these teeth are perfectly shaped to capture things like squid and fish. But as they grow to be adults, those teeth start to change and they become more of that shape that we are all familiar with, those larger triangles with those serrated steak knife-like edges. Now, these teeth are then perfectly shaped to eat things like marine mammals, so they will feed on dead whale carcasses or seals or sea lions, depending on where they are located globally in the world. So here on the Northwest Atlantic, we will see these white sharks feeding on seals, dead whale carcasses, and other large species of fish. So that is my favorite white shark fact is that they have baby teeth and then they also have adult teeth. But to learn more about this species and the research that Megan Winton is currently conducting, continue listening on and we will get started with her interview. So I am here with Gills Club scientists and as well as my co-worker, Megan Winton. She is the staff scientist for the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy. So welcome, Megan. Hello, Kristen. How are you today? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty, pretty great, gotta say. That's good. Um, so for people that maybe are not familiar with your work or hasn't been following the Gills Club for a very long time, what is your current research focused on or what is your current line of work? Well, as you mentioned, I am uh, the staff scientist at the Conservancy and I feel incredibly lucky that most of my research right now is really focused on the white shark population off the coast of Cape Cod. So I'm currently collaborating on a number of studies that are going to greatly improve our understanding of their movements and predatory behavior off of our coastline, as well as coming up with a population estimate for how many white sharks come to Cape Cod every year. It's a question we get a lot, um, and I, I can't wait to have an answer for everybody. 
as I said earlier, I'm very lucky enough to be able to work with Megan on a daily basis and learning more about this. So when we are able to have that population number published, it's going to be very exciting, not just for you, but for everyone that has been um, involved in. Um, but throughout your past research, do you want to explain um, maybe your past experience that experiences that you have had as a scientist? Oh, I almost don't even know where to start. I feel that's one thing I have to say I really love about being a scientist is you just, sometimes you don't know where your work is going to take you. So when I decided I wanted to become a marine scientist, I knew I was interested in sharks. I knew I was interested in shark conservation, but I've been working in the field for around 15 years now. And along the way, I've had some, some really interesting opportunities to study a whole suite of marine species. But science can really take you some incredible places. I've got to live on both coasts of the United States. I've studied everything from deep sea species that people don't know much about to flounder, to sea turtles, um, all the way up to, to white sharks off of Cape Cod. If you had told me that I'd be studying white sharks um, when I grew up, when I was a kid, I... I would have been number one, super excited. Um, but I also don't know if I if I would have believed you. Um, it seems like a, like a long road. I don't think I've ever felt really cool enough to study white sharks. Um, but it's 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 great to wake up loving what you do every day and and being just interested and, and constantly curious. Um, I think about these things all the time. And I'll stop rambling for you now because I'll keep going. <laughs> I mean, I love your enthusiasm, and I'm sure people that are listening are going to feed off of that as well. I mean, they know that you're so passionate about what you do, which makes it so much better to be able to do your job if you are passionate about it. You said that you would never expected to be able to work with the species here along the coastline, but so is that like the bucket list shark for you, or is there a shark that you haven't been able to study yet that you still want to get your hands on? That's a great question. So I grew up in Florida, where there are a lot of, of what are known as carcharinid sharks. So they're, they're in a different family than white sharks. They're kind of your typical sleek looking gray shark, to think about them. And so when I was growing up, I, I really wanted to study lamnids, so mackerel sharks. So like the white shark, like the mako, like the poor beagle. Um, I don't think I ever thought I would, I would end up in, in Massachusetts. And honestly, until I saw a white shark for the first time in 2015, I'd read a ton about them. I'd watched a lot of documentaries, but they were almost still just kind of like this mythical creature. Um, and so the, the first time I was out on one of the research trips off the Cape and I finally saw a white shark, it was like, I just think I almost couldn't process it at first. I wouldn't say that they were necessarily the species I set out to study. There's over 500 species of sharks uh, sharks out there. Um, there's a lot of really interesting, important species that don't get as much airplay as white sharks, but there's something that's just so charismatic um, about them. So I feel very, very fortunate to, to be studying them right now. In terms of a bucket list shark species, a species that I've wanted to see that I, I haven't, um, mine would be the longfin mako for no real great reason. Um, I, they're, they're just a really cool species. You don't see them that often. Um, they live deep. They look very similar to a short fin mako, a quote unquote regular mako, but they have these really long pectoral fins. 
and they get really big. And that's just for whatever reason, a species I've always wanted to see and be able to study. Being um, a scientist here off of Cape Cod, you know, we do have such a dynamic coastline and we can face challenges that way. But you've also dealt in many other environments. Um, You did mention you have done research on the West Coast of the United States and now here on the East Coast. But what challenges do you face as a scientist? It could be current or past challenges. Mm, that's such a good question. There's, there's, there's always challenges, whether they're, they're, you know, technical challenges, equipment challenges, figuring out how you're going to get a sample or how you're going to study an animal that lives underwater. Um, scientists have to get really creative. You become kind of an inventor along the way. Um, there's also methodological challenges in terms of how you're going to analyze your data. It's like a big puzzle. How do you make sense of all these data points you collect during the course of the study? Um, and there, there are other challenges as well. So one of the biggest challenges we are facing on Cape Cod is getting the word out to folks about white sharks and their presence off of our beaches. We want people to be aware of their presence so they can proactively modify their behavior so they don't have a bad interaction with a white shark because these are large predators that are, are hunting off of our coastline. So being able not only to conduct the science, but be very proactive about outreach and education and getting out there and engaging with the community is, is a big um, part of the work, as well as trying to, to teach people about these animals. There are still a lot of misperceptions out there. A lot of people still think of these, these animals as these kind of mindless eating machines, but they're much more complicated than that, and they play a really critical role in their environment. Absolutely. And I, to play off of that, um, I mean, obviously I love sharks and I've grown up to love them and I never knew that. I never, I should say, I never had that perception that they were these crazy eating machines, but just being able to get that hands-on experience here and leading the eco tours and being able, being able to show people those perceptions, um, I should say to show people that might have those perceptions about sharks. And especially when we see our frequent flyers like James and how they all have their own different kind of like attitudes and personality and that they aren't these crazy eating machines that people do think they are. So yeah, having that ed- education out point is definitely key for sure. And as well as that research to be able to tell people about what you are all doing out there on the water every summer and fall. That's one of the aspects of the work that makes it so rewarding um, to work as a scientist here in this area and to be working on white sharks is the level of community engagement. And for all of you gills out there who are wondering if there's still work to be done, there's so much we still don't know about these species. And there's so much that the public still doesn't know. So every time we get a question or we interact with somebody who's really afraid of sharks. It's super motivating and it reminds us of just how much work there is left to be done. Yes, um, that is a really good point to say that even if it isn't in white sharks, there's so much work to be done with, as Megan mentioned, there's over 500 species of sharks that there's so much work to be done. Um, you can pretty much just throw a dart at the board and pick what shark species. And I'm sure there's going to be something to learn about that species that you throw your dart at. Um, But if it was with the white shark research that you're working on now or even past research, what was your favorite like discovery or like aha moment that you've had so far? That's such a good question. (laughs) And I don't know if this will um, destroy any illusions about scientists, but most of the time 
science isn't so much a big aha moment where you figure it all out. A lot of times it sounds more like, oh, that's funny. That seems kind of weird. I wonder what that's about. But a lot of the biggest discoveries, they're, they're, a lot of times they're very incremental. You learn one little thing or you set out to answer one specific question about a species. And then you realize that that question opens up a whole other suite of questions. But I do have to say one of the, the coolest things we've documented off of the coast of Cape Cod um, was, was we got video footage of a white shark resting on the bottom after eating a meal, which white sharks, like most shark species, have to keep swimming, like most fish species have to keep swimming to, to pump water over their gills so they can breathe. But this shark basically took a break on the bottom, faced straight into the, the tidal current, um, and, and just had water flowing over her gills that way. And we know she had just eaten because we saw a little trailing seal intestine hanging out of her, her gill slit. Um, and so that was something that when I was going through that video footage, um, and it was a camera that was actually embedded in the tag. So we were essentially just riding along with this white shark while this tag was on the animal. And when I saw that shark just stop on the bottom and just sit there, I couldn't believe it. I jumped up um, and I ran into Dr. Greg Hummel's office and I was like, stop what you're doing. You gotta look at this, this is so weird. So that's a lot of times what science sounds like when you make a big discovery, it's not, aha, I figured it out. It's, oh, this, looks, this is so weird. But um, that was one of the most exciting moments I've had recently yeah. it's so cool it's like adding that like that extra puzzle piece into like the thousand piece white shark puzzle that we're trying to put together very slowly <laughs> that is a perfect way of describing it actually <laughs> <laughs> um can you um just further explain that tag that you were talking about for maybe for some listeners that don't know what that tag is yeah, so the, the, I, I guess the best way to explain it, the way I like to explain it is essentially we're giving smartphones to white sharks. So they collect data in a really high resolution. So 20 times a second, they collect movement data on that animal, as well as information on that animal's environment. But the best thing of all about these tags is that they include a video camera so we can actually see what the shark is doing. The, the things that we're able to document about these animals with technology now is it's really incredible. Like I said before, essentially we get to ride along on the back of a white shark and just see what it does. And it helps us make better sense of the tagging data that we're collecting. It gives us a peek into the lives of these animals um, that otherwise we wouldn't have. And I'm just, for all of you guilds who are out there listening, I am so excited for you guys and the type of technology that's going to be available when you are shark scientists, because it's the, the, the pace at which we've been able to learn about these animals over the, the past couple of decades as the technology has gotten better and better. It's just phenomenal what, what you can do these days. I mean, I've been here, what, since 2016 and just seeing how much it's changed since then. And like my mind is blown. And so, yeah, who would have thought about it? With, you know, the expansion of technology um, that you were just talking about and just being able to learn more about the species and sharks in general. So if this is like your dream, your pie in the sky, if you had extra funding 
for if it is another research project or to dig deeper into something? What would you spend it on? Oh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> there, there are so, there are so, so many, many things. things. You might have to think about this one for a second. If funding weren't an option, I mean, basically, how crazy can I get here? Can I say I would love it if somebody could invent gills for humans <laughs> so we could just stay underwater and follow these animals <laughs> around? But, um, <laughs> I mean, the technology is incredible, and I probably can't even think of some of the things that are are going to be possible um, later on down the road. In terms of something I would love to be able to do right now off the case, if there were funding available for it. So one of the, the studies we've been working on is this big population study. So over the the, the past five years, we've been going out, we've been collecting underwater video footage of white sharks. And we can actually identify individual white sharks from that footage. They, they all look different. They all have different spot patterns, different coloration patterns, different injuries. Um, and so to date, we've documented just over 500 white sharks off the coast of Cape Cod, which is pretty phenomenal. But looking through all that video, you start to notice that certain individuals look very similar. And you can't help but wonder, are they related? Are they siblings? So if I could, I would take a genetic sample from every white shark off the coast of the Cape um, right now and see who's related to who. That that would be an incredibly uh, fun, interesting study. It, and it, it, it's important from a biological perspective to know as well, to know potentially how many, how many female white sharks are out there breeding. In some areas of the world, they found that, that white sharks um, tend to kind of hang out in certain groups. Are the ones that are hanging out more related? We don't know. So that's, that's kind of my pie in the sky dream thought study right now. But I mean, all of this technology isn't cheap. These, these tags aren't cheap. We're able to document incredible things with them, but everything is expensive. Getting out in the field is expensive. Um, and so a little bit of funding really does go a long way at, at helping us collect improved information on these animals so we can learn more about what it is they're doing in the waters off of our coastline. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're, I mean, we've this kind of been the theme is that like, we still don't know so much about them. Like we think we know a lot, but then like one thing happens and then like, oh, well, here's another like can of worms we have to figure out here. Is it true that, you know, like we've never seen in anywhere of the world that a white shark either mate or reproduce, correct? Yeah, there is one report um, from a marine mammal observer who was standing on a cliff in New Zealand. I'm pretty sure they were a marine mammal observer. But in case anybody is cringing, saying, you're wrong, it was a bird observer, I fully admit that I might be shaky on that detail. But they did say they saw two white sharks um, mating or at the very least come together and, and clasp onto each other. Um, but there were no photographs. And other than that, there hasn't been any direct evidence of, of mating. No one's seen a pregnant white shark give birth. So there's a lot of very essential things that biologists want to know about these animals in order to be able to better manage them. It's super important to know where all these important things are, are happening. But, but nobody's documented that yet. So there's still so much work to be done. 
So we've talked about, you know, people that you have collaborated with and um, with your people you've collaborated maybe in past re- research, people you've collaborated with through your your university time, or maybe it's just your best friend at home. But who or what is your best resource when being a scientist? Oh, there's so many answers to this question. <laughs> um, well, you can give multiple. Well, I mean, I think to start, I, I have to give a shout out to my parents because they just had me totally convinced I could be what I wanted to be and pursue what I wanted to pursue. And they always encouraged my interest in science. And I never for a moment questioned the feasibility of the career path um, that I had chosen, even though other people outside of, of them did um, at certain times. Um, so I really thank them for that and for their support and encouragement throughout the years because science is a long road. I'm mm-hmm. still in school and I'm 36 years old. <laughs> so it, it takes a while sometimes. They're great. Scientifically, um, I have to say Dr. Greg Stolmo at the Division of Marine Fisheries has been a huge mentor for me um, and a source of support. He's been really encouraging and it's and very empowering to work with a scientist who treats you as an equal, even when you're a grad student or somebody without as much experience. So I've learned a lot from him and he really kind of let me find my way in a lot of ways and, and helped me build my confidence as a scientist. And I also have to thank, aside from all my awesome coworkers at the Conservancy, because it's so much fun to be able to work with a group of like-minded, passionate individuals but I also have to say my dog has been a huge um, collaborator for me because she makes me take breaks. Science, when you love what you do, it can be really tough to take breaks because even when you're not technically working, you're thinking about work and these different things you want to do. And like sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night with this cool idea that you want to pursue, but I have a, a black Labrador retriever named Dusky after a Dusky shark. And um, she loves going on walks and going on hikes. And a lot of times if I'm banging my head against the wall, trying to run a certain analysis or figure something out and things aren't going right, they'll basically say, hey, Megan, it's time to go on a walk. And during the course of that walk, things will kind of fall into place and I'll be able to fix my code or put together the pieces of the puzzle. So all those little incremental aha moments that make up science my dog has been a big collaborator in a lot of that. <laughs> Dusky, the most scientific black lab out there. She actually should just oh, probably. Yeah, she doesn't even know it. <laughs> <laughs> the next time she just needs a mention in your in your next paper. It's just like, oh, and also like Dusky, the black lab. <laughs> she was getting a, an acknowledgement in my PhD for sure. <laughs> oh, oh, my gosh. I'm so excited. But to round out um, our interview today, what would advice you would give your younger self? Oh, my younger self. I thought you were going to say, what advice would you give skills? Probably the same advice I would I would give to my younger self, which is just, you might not always feel like a scientist. That's been one thing I've, I've kind of recognized along the way is that when I was a kid, when I would go to an aquarium, I would think about the fact that I wanted to be a marine biologist when I grew up and I was like one day I'm going to walk around this aquarium and I'm going to know everything about all of these species but I will tell you that as somebody who's been working as a scientist for a while now 
that expert moment, like I just think I expected at some point I would all of a sudden become an expert. It would just click, whether it was after I got my master's degree or had worked for a certain amount of time. But that moment never happened. And you realize the more you learn, the more you realize there is to learn. But along the way, you know, I struggled with a lot of insecurity in my first couple of years working in science, feeling like I wasn't smart enough or I wasn't experienced enough. And I was always so focused on getting to the next step. But then when I realized you'll never have that expert moment, I realized I was a scientist all along. Um, and I found that very empowering. And I just wish that I had thought of myself that way a little bit earlier that I didn't think it took a certain degree or a certain step that I was thinking of a scientist that I was very curious about the world around me and, and these animals I was studying because I think I would have enjoyed it a lot more early on so some of those experiences I think I was so fixated on the end goal but realize that if you're if you're interested in science and you're studying things you you're qualified to be a scientist that's that's what it is there's you know I'll stop because I'll just keep rambling <laughs> no but this is great <laughs> this is great advice I mean yeah you know you're, you're staying passionate you're staying motivated you're staying confident in yourself and I think that can go for someone maybe that's listening to this right now that maybe they just love sharks and they just want to learn more about shark science maybe they don't want to go the scientist route they can take that you know, that advice to any career that they want to. So I think that's a great thing to say. Yeah, yeah there's no such thing as a, as a quote unquote scientist. Yeah. There's just not. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm so happy that you changed your mindset, Megan, because you are such a rock star. Rock star. <laughs> and I'm so happy to be able to learn from you and learn more about sharks from you every day. So thank you so much for being able to spend some time to teach us all about your little bit of your background and who you are and what you do today. So again, thank you so much. Of course, anytime. Thanks for the invite. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed our interview today with Megan Winton. She is just such a light and always is so passionate. And I know she kept saying throughout the interview that I know I'm rambling, but her rambling is just showing her passion for her work and for the species here along our coastline, the white shark. So I hope you were able to learn more about her work today and maybe are inspired yourself um, to maybe work with white sharks in our future or to just learn about the species that we do see here off of the United States and specifically the Cape Cod coastline. So until next time, keep exploring, keep learning about sharks and our oceans and have a great one. Bye.